namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So we come to chapter 6, the third exit point from the cycle. Uh, <clears throat> it starts off with a quotation from the Dhammachaka uh, Bhavatana Sutta, the discourse on the turning of the wheel. This bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha. The complete cessation, giving up, abandonment of that craving complete release from that craving and complete detachment from it. This is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, and this cessation of dukkha is to be realized. The first section is called Embodying Peace. When we notice that the... And also, just to say again, this is um, uh, uh, the third exit point from the cycle. This is not a sort of categorical or classical authorized description, but just my own um, uh, reflections joining up the dots um, in various ways so that uh, there are other exit points from the cycle of dependent origination that can be can be found and can be developed. So don't, don't think this is sort of exclusive or definitive, but rather just a particular format that um, uh, I've uh, been, been using and reflecting upon. Um, so say, for example, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa um, used to talk about the uh, uh, development of mindfulness to dis- to discern the the link between contact and feeling, and so I was there at at Suanmok, uh in 1988. I was there, able to stay at his monastery for a couple of weeks in 1988, and uh, I was um, uh, say, I remember hearing him speaking about this and saying, you know, if you're really mindful, you can. Uh, notice the change between contact and the feeling arise, that arises from sense contact, and so and he would discourse at quite some length of that. So there are other exit points that can be uh, found and developed. So I, I just want to underscore that this my way of speaking about it is not the the one and only or the definitive way. So embodying peace, when we notice that the mind has been caught in some kind of entanglement, some kind of grasping whether a thought or a feeling, something that we see or hear or taste or smell, something that is beautiful or ugly, blissful or painful. In that moment of mindfulness, when it is noticed that the mind is distracted and the attention is entangled, it's very helpful to be conscious of the sensations of grasping. What is the feeling of grasping and entanglement? That tensing of the heart around a particular object How does that feel? We take a moment to stay with that feeling of grasping before we let it go. If we take a moment and let that feeling be fully conscious, we see what it's like. When we let that tension, that grasping, that stressing of the heart be fully known, then the letting go comes from a natural and intuitive place. We allow ourselves to recognize that we're causing ourselves stress and pain. Why would we bother doing that? It's like holding our hand too close to to the fire. Ow! That burns. The hand is withdrawn in a natural and automatic way. Letting go happens because of wisdom. The heart recognizes that we are creating our own stress, our own burden, our own grasping, our own dukkha. And why would we want to do that? This recognition is very helpful because often we relate to spiritual advice or meditation guidance as following orders or obeying a set of instructions. Rather, in this way, as I've just been describing, we're listening to our own wisdom. This has a different quality. When obeying orders, there is not that intuitive sense of the real reason why we let go. So, when we find the attention is entangled, Grasping a feeling or a thought or a perception, we take a moment to let that be fully felt, to fully know that state of grasping. We recognize what is being done 
and how afflictive it is. And then the letting go comes from the heart. It's a natural falling away rather than a me doing something that I should be doing because that's what the rules say I should do. It's a natural movement of the heart. It is as if we were out in the bright sunshine in the afternoon and the body's getting hot. So it, we incline towards the shade of a tree to give the body some relief. It's a natural and simple gesture. The result is coolness. So this uh, listening to your own heart, listening to uh, coming from the place of, of intuition rather than, than following a system, um, that's a, again a very central principle of the development of, of wisdom and uh, following the, the Buddha's path. Um, I, I don't know how many times over the years uh, that people have come to me in various different situations with their meditation practice or their family life or their work life or whether they should come into the monastery or leave the monastery or <laughs> what, uh, what, the, what a person should do. And it's like, Ajahn, what should I do? And uh, often I'll come up with a clever answer like, you should ask yourself while you're asking me what to do. <laughs> the first thing, why are you asking me? You know, uh, then I, uh, if I'm being mindful, I'll put aside my uh, too clever by half answers, and instead say, "Well, that I can make responses, but it's mo uh, the most helpful thing in any kind of decision making is to learn how to consult your own intuition, your own your own wisdom." And so. Uh, almost invariably, I, I, I make a principle of, of never making people's decisions for them, particularly any kind of life-changing decision, um, anything that involves money or relationships in particular. <laughs> like up to you; <laughs> it's your your choice. Or even coming into the monastery or leaving the monastery. You know, it's like, what should I do, Ajahn? Should I should I ask for ordination? Should I or should I leave? Uh, then I'll say I should. I say you should. Consult your own oracle is a phrase I often use. That, you know, the the oracle, if people know what that word is, like a fortune teller. Or the, in ancient Greece, in a place called Delphi, uh, people would go to. Uh, there was a a a, a, a prophetess that lived in this cave, Delphi, and people would go and consult the the oracle the the. Uh, uh, the oracle at Delphi, and then would get a, a reading or a, a, a um, uh, a uh, uh, piece of advice from that uh, apparently, supposedly spiritually attuned entity uh, living there at Delphi. So that uh, con consulting your own oracle is uh, learning to uh, draw upon your own intuition, your own intuitive wisdom to to guide your actions and your choices. Um, so uh, that is, uh, I would say, very much the the case as well in terms of following meditation instruction rather than here is what it says in the book this is what the the, the instruction manual says do this do this do this but uh, it's far more helpful and uh, genuinely beneficial uh, I find if that we're we're learning to uh, to develop our own intuitive sense of you know, when to press forward when to hold back when to when to be tight when to be loose and uh, when, and also when things are just uh, perfectly in tune, and that rather than following a set of instructions like painting by numbers, you know, sort of filling in the little shapes according to the number with the, and the number on the paint pot, it's the, it's the difference between painting by numbers and uh, and actually painting a picture according to your own feeling and, and your own intuitive sense. So, any questions, thoughts on that? Yes. Um, yes, I have something regarding co contact and feeling. Um, it's it's a bit of a Vinaya question because there's that um, that passage where the Buddha says um, it's, it would be better if your belly would be cut open with a sharp butcher's knife than you um, would delight in alms food. And the thing <laughs> is, if, if I eat a dish which I like, Mm -hmm. It's very hard to, to keep the delight away because uh -huh. it goes so quick. They choose all the ones you don't like. Ten times over, I'm joking. <laughs> this, this I didn't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> delete, delete that. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Yeah, so the thing is, the, the, the delight happens so quick. Mm -hmm. So I just just wonder, you know, why why does he say that? 
Yeah, because you can't, I mean, if you're not, not highly attained uh, and you, you know, you can stop it, um, you know, what, what can you do? The delight comes automatically if you eat something which, which you like. Um. Well, the Buddha was very, a very skilled teacher. And so he used dramatic language, attention, attention grabbing language um, uh, from time to time to, to, um, to get our attention. <laughs> To, to, to make a point in quite a, a strong and, and clear way, like the um, uh, the um, the simile of the saw. You know, you, if you were captured by bandits and they're sawing your arms and legs off with a two-handled saw, anyone who gives a rise to a, a feeling of aversion towards those people on account of that, they're not following my teaching. It's like, placing the bar pretty pretty high. It's an Olympic uh, Olympic height bar to to be jumping over. Um, but it's making a point. It's it's very graphic language. It's a, it's like a very um, uh, memorable image. It's a, better to have your belly cut open with a with a, uh, a sharp knife than to be delighting. But I think also the word relishing is um, is a good word in English. I'm sure there's a good word in German that has the same kind of tone of like yes, that kind of really buying into a particular sensation because. Um, the the Buddha's own sense of taste was extremely acute. Mm. Um, uh, uh, there's a there's a passage. It's not in the suttas, I don't think. I think it's in one of the commentaries that Lumpur Cha used to to quote sometimes. Where um, there's a, the Buddha's been invited to a banquet, like a very uh, a, a lavish meal offered by like King Pasenadi or King Bimbisara, and uh, Venerable Ananda is. Uh, along with him as his attendant, and uh, there's this kind of enormous spread of this sort of fine food uh, that's been offered to them. And the Venerable Ananda says, uh, "It is wonderful. It is marvelous how even though there is this um, this, this this banquet with all these uh, uh, these uh, like these uh, fine foods and uh, and luxurious dishes that uh, the uh, the Tathagata uh, is uh, is completely equanimous and." Uh, is completely uh, unaffected by any of the flavors or, or tastes that, is, um, that are there. It's as if they were, and I, I think the language is along the lines of, uh, you know, as if they were all just one one taste. They were all just uh, they were without without flavor. And again, I, I, I should memorize the passage <laughs> properly, but it's along those lines. And the Buddha says, "Not so, Ananda," as he often did. Not so. And then he takes some food out of his bowl and he gives it to Ananda and says. Here, Ananda, eat this, and you will taste things as the Tathagata tastes them. And then Ananda puts the food in his mouth, and there's this kind of explosion. Of, of, uh, it's incredible uh, texture and of uh, delicious, powerful flavors. And and he and then Ananda's like, "Venerable sir, this is remarkable. You know, this is incredible." He said, "Yes, and this is how the Tathagata tastes. Not just this fine kind of banquet that offered by the the, the royal family, but." Uh, this is uh, the, whenever the Tathagata eats food, he has this acute sense of taste. So this is this is not uh, unusual for the Tathagata to be tasting things in this way. But yet, still, his mind, even though there is this great intensity of flavor, and it is uh, extremely sort of pleasant and delicious, still his mind is completely equanimous in relationship to that. So whereas Ananda is making the assumption that there's no distinction of flavor, and also that there's no uh, enjoying of the of the the, the um, delicious flavors. Yes, they are they are recognized. They are acknowledged, and it's you know, extraordinarily uh, potent for the for a, a, a samar sambuddha. But but yet the mind is not sort of shaken. Doesn't relish. It doesn't sort of buy into that or get lost in it. And uh, there's an interesting um, uh, another sutta called the Brahma Yu Sutta, where uh, this. This elderly Brahmin who was like 120 years old, he'd heard the reputation of the Buddha and this kind of great enlightened being. And he asked one of his Brahmin students to go and stay with the Buddha as a visiting monk for some time and to sort of make a report, kind of spy on the Buddha, essentially to kind of spy on the Buddha. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the most interesting suttas because it sort of gives you a, a picture of somewhat, something of the day-to-day -day life of the, of the Buddha and, and how he did things. And this, this young Brahmin student goes back to Brahmayu, the old Brahmin master, and, and uh, talks about how um, 
the uh, when, when the Buddha is eating, that uh, he uh, uh, he he puts a mouthful of food into his mouth and he chews and he swallows everything that's in, in his mouth. Only when every last rice grain has has been swallowed, then he'll reach for the next mouthful, and then. And then when he's eaten enough, he, he puts the, the bowl uh, away and then his ha- he washes his hands and then they offer the blessing. So anyway, I won't bore you with the details, but it's, uh, it's that uh, the sense of composure and naturalness around, around eating yeah, and, that, uh, and how eating in a mindful and thorough way. But even in the midst of that, he's having this ex- extraordinarily powerful and uh, uh, experience of flavors that, that ordinary people would be would be knocked over by and that you know, Ananda was sort of, was amazed at the intensity of flavor he was experiencing. So it's a difference between, yes, there's a delicious flavor, yes, there's enjoyment, and then there's relishing, there's the grasping, and oh, this is great, you know, how can I get more of this, or that, that there's a line that's crossed there between feeling and craving, I would say. And that, um, and so that I, I feel in that uh, the, um, Having a better to have your belly cut open with a sharp knife than to be relishing. Uh, it's, like, it's like getting lost in the the uh, um, the flavors of arms who eating too much, but you know, knowing the right amount. And uh, yeah, and also the, when the in a different sutta when the Buddha's uh, asked uh, or if someone praises the Buddha, oh, you know, you're such a uh, an impressive uh, meditator, an impressive ascetic, you know, and. Uh, and you know you're you're so modest uh, and uh, have, uh, you you are so uh, so humble in so many ways, and he, he praises the Buddha for these various things like um, his uh, simplicity of his his robes and his food and his living place, and and the, and the Buddha kind of keeps refusing him. He's trying to praise him, but the Buddha said, "Well, that's one who praises the Tathagata for um, for for the amount of food he eats." Is praising the Tathagata for the wrong reason because sometimes I eat one bowl, two bowls, three bowls full of food. You know, so he. Actually, I, mean, I guess their bowls were smaller than ours. Considerably <laughs> 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 smaller. But he, he makes that point: is that you know, if you're praising me for just eating a small amount of food, you're praising me for the wrong reason because sometimes, if it's the occasion and if I'm hungry or if that's, uh, then I'll eat you know two or three bowls, uh, arms bowls filled of food. So you're praising me for the wrong reason. So that. It's um, uh, that matanyuta, the right amount, eating the right amount, what's needed, and then measure, you know, having a sense of that, and not getting lost in the, the in the flavors and the the experience of the kind of gratification of eating. That's the point. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I hope you are reassured. Yes. Yes. And you've deleted my my previous comment. Yes, I am. Thank yes. you. <laughs> okay. To continue. Yes. Because the point that Venerable was making was about the, the link between contact and feeling rather than feeling and craving. Yes, yes. So, would it be true to say that as long as there is contact, there will be feeling? Like you can't will it, you can't stop it, you can't, unless you are severely depressed or, <laughs> or unconscious, if there is contact, there must be feeling. Um, well, uh, there are states of extreme concentration. Yeah, so some, some sort of, something is out of, that, uh, out of uh, extraordinary. Yeah, in, in, those, so in those extraordinary states, the, the concentration is so acute that there is, sense contact is happening, but the, the, the mind is so, uh, so, con- so focused, so, so absorbed, that the whole realm of, of, of perception and feeling doesn't arise. So the contact is there. So the eye organ, the light hitting the eye organ, and then the, the nerves on the back of the eye sending the, the impulse down the optic nerve. But it's like, gets to the brain, it's like, shut, you know, the door is shut. <laughs> because, and so that, that's uh, called the cessation of perception and feeling, the nirodha samapati. So that's like the, the highest of the, or the most refined of all of the jhanas. And uh, so it's uh, that it is possible, but I think Ajahn Buddhadasa wasn't talking about that in, but more just a, a, an acute quality of uh, of mindfulness and being able to notice that um, the the shift from contact to to feeling. I, I was frankly amazed when I heard him say that. I thought, 
well done, Ajahn. <laughs> good, good for you because I couldn't. Uh, it, it, it does seem to happen so fast. It's, it's so kind of automatic. But then, with with enough uh, clarity of, of of vision, enough concentration, and enough real mindfulness, uh, I would uh, say that yeah, that there can be that sort of, in a way, in a sense, slowing down of the whole process or looking at feeling the whole process in a very microscopic way. That 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 particular. Uh, jump can be can be known, and uh, there there can be a um, a recognition of that 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 link. But there is not much. Like I still can't see much of an exit from there. I mean, just to use a food analogy because it's an easy one. So I can imagine how you can train yourself into swapping one vedana for another. Like mm-hmm. I, I made myself to like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but it's still Vedana, right? There is contact mm-hmm. with Brussels sprouts, and I either like them or don't like them. But to have no feeling is just not. I can't see the exit. Basically. Yeah. So uh, with, with all of these, it's uh, you. You work with what's accessible, and so that uh, that um, uh, so that uh, and each of us has sort of different dispositions, as I said many many times. So uh, this is just sort of laying out the, the theory or the kind of the map of of how things work. But whether that's a uh, that description of say breaking the cycle between contact and, and feeling is if it's sort of out of the scope or the mind can't relate to that, then no problem. Just, you know, use the entry point or use the the the, the area, focus on the area that is meaningful and tangible for for one. Okay, so to continue. When that letting go has happened, and the heart is free of grasping, free of entanglement, it's also very helpful to notice how that feels. When there is that quality of the heart free of grasping, how does it feel? What is its its texture, its tone, its nature? In that moment, it is realized that there is simplicity, there is peace, there is clarity, There's a spaciousness and a brightness. And if it's explored carefully and closely, it'll be recognized that in that moment, there's no sense of self. In that moment before I pick up the practice again, or I become distracted by another object, there is a recognition of simplicity. There's no person acting, doing, feeling. There is awareness that it is just how it is. But that awareness is not a person and doesn't belong to a person. The mind knows personal qualities arising and ceasing, but in its essence, the mind is not a person, it is Dhamma. And you might even have seen some people walking around in t-shirts with that written on them. Now, the uh, t-shirts we've been giving out to various people, it's got that written on the back. The, uh, the mind is Dhamma, not a person, or the mind is not a person, it's Dhamma. I forget which. But, uh, so that uh, collection of qualities... Uh, purity, radiance, peacefulness, um, spaciousness, uh, brightness, then that's a, a Lumpur Cha's definition of, uh, of Dhamma, which I thought I would share with you, which is um, very helpfully here in Bodhinyana, the very first collection of his teachings that was uh, published in English. And there was another one or two little booklets before in Thai. So his description of, of Buddha and Dhamma are as follows. Buddha is the one who knows, the one who has purity, radiance, and peace in his heart. Dhamma means the characteristics of purity, radiance, and peace, which arise from morality, concentration, and wisdom. Therefore, one who is to reach the Buddha Dhamma is one who cultivates and develops morality, concentration, and wisdom. So Dhamma means the characteristics of purity, radiance, and peace, and in the Thai language, that alliterates very, uh, very beautifully as soang saat songop. That's the correct pronunciation. Can I? <laughs> Not quite. Soang <laughs> soang means radiant. Saat means pure. Songop means peaceful. Purity, radiance. How would you say it, Suvira? Thank you. <laughs> uh, the correct, correct pronunciation. Uh, 
and my my tones are uh, off. <laughs> so that um, uh, you know, that quality uh, is uh, is important when the grasping stops, uh, and uh, that uh, the, there's that moment of clarity when the, there's been a letting go rather than sort of getting on to the next thing or getting back to the practice or getting back uh, to anything <laughs> there's to notice when the grasping stops uh, what uh, what is present uh, how does it feel and um, the uh, uh, that is a, also a common phrase that, that appears here and there in the in the teachings in the suttas uh, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness, or uh, also uh, in terms of bhava or becoming, uh, there is a, an exchange between, um, I think it's Venerable Sariputta and Mahakotita, where there is a dialogue about the, the uh, meditation, and Venerable Sariputta says, bhava nirodo nibbanang. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. So that is also that when when the becoming, when the grasping, when that that uh, has uh, when that's not present, then there's that natural quality of peacefulness. So nibbana, that profound simplicity and clarity and peacefulness, that spacious, bright quality, that's what's present when the grasping stops. Uh, and it, it's easy to miss that. So uh, through the rest of this chapter, we'll sort of talk about uh, that aspect of, of the need to realize um, that quality. When we recognize this over and over again, purity, simplicity, brightness, no sense of self, what does that say about the basic nature of mind? If every time that the grasping and entanglement dissolve, there is simplicity, purity, brightness, no sense of self, doesn't that suggest that that is the fundamental, primal nature of mind? It is only the clouds of grasping, entanglement and self-view that come along and obscure the bright sun, the pure heart. Any questions, thoughts? Okay. Yes? Uh, it seems that grasping is always connected uh, with some kind of... Uh Symbol like uh, maybe the uh, like object uh, either pleasant like some symbol that you keep in your mind or something that was pleasant or some memory. It's uh, sometimes it has a uh, very often it has a, an obvious object. Sometimes it's just a, like a, <laughs> a a reflex, just no 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 apparent object at all, just like desire seeking. It can be like a that. That hungering, just looking, looking for an object. So that's what I wanted to yeah. ask. Like, if, <laughs> if, if, okay, uh, there is no object that like seems desirable, but still there is a tension in, in the body. Like you, you don't desire something in particular, but uh, still there is some grasping. How to work with this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to notice that that's going on, to to be aware of like that that uh, sense of of hungering. Like uh, I want something. I don't know what I want, but I want it now. <laughs> that the, the uh, that uh, acknowledging that, and and so particularly using the the feelings of the body, the, the physical sensation of that, because uh, like many aspects of, of 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 this is bringing awareness to that the act of grasping. Like if you, if you don't realize. That, you know, you think I'm feeling, I'm really, really feeling tense. I'm not kind of uptight. I'm really, I'm stressing. You know, why am I stressing? Oh, I'm holding this lid. <laughs> oh, oh, why am I doing that for? And as soon as you realise that 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 t- tension has got a source, then it it it, it uh, loses its ability to to um, dominate the mind. Uh, when it's not acknowledged that that's happening or where it's coming from, and it's not fully known, then the the that hungering then will, will feed the the, uh, the the habits of the senses, so that you think I need to, I want to talk to somebody, I want to eat something, or start an argument, or <laughs> go somewhere, do something. Uh, it's just it, it'll it, it'll seek 
any kind of object that you can find, and and those will be seen as reasonable. The thinking mind will sort of come in and say, yeah, actually, I really do need something to eat, or yeah, I should talk to so and so. And the the memory and thinking kind of come in and make a, a reason for that. But if we turn the attention back and just feel that you know agitated, hungering uh, quality, that uh, you know, desire, looking for an object, <laughs> uh, then that. The, the the physical sensation is much less complicated than all of the mental creations, and so just know it in the body, and then again just uh, to the to the degree that there there can be an awareness of that, not trying to get rid of it, not trying to explain it, not trying to do anything with it, just letting that awareness have its own effect. It doesn't mean it'll it'll disappear immediately, but there it it, uh, it makes it far easier not to to just be following that in an unconscious way. So mindfulness of the body and getting to know that that agitated, um, restless uh, quality in the body, then that, that's, uh, I think, yeah, very, very helpful. Because also that, that kind of restlessness, it can be extremely subtle. Udache is the word for it. So the, the, um, the, that, um, it's like it's very easy to miss that because life is often so active. <laughs> There's so many things going on, and what we see here, smell, taste, touch, and and think. So that that kind of background uh, agitation or or, or um, uh, hungering that that uh, that quality, it's easy to miss it. And so, if you develop in the meditation, just when things are very quiet, and very and very still bringing attention to that whenever that that might arise getting to know that like getting familiar with that like a particular like a as if, like, if it, as if it was like a particular sound or a taste or a, a smell it's like oh i know that oh it's that it's that feeling i know that that's familiar and that that's very helpful because then as that arises then you, you know, oh <laughs> here's that that agitated craving qualities of looking for a a, a thing to be so then you, you get to know that, that sensation, just like uh, a familiar sound or a familiar shape or a familiar color or taste. Does mean that uh, for this to be present, mind should still believe that there is some state uh, to look forward to? Like uh, probably it's not looking for any object, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, mind should still believe that there is like something to be, uh, mm-hmm. like maybe the rest of the day it might go to some fantasies, what will I do, what can I become, mm-hmm. but this it is just bare uh, feeling of the body, is consequences of this belief that there is somebody to be, so it's mm-hmm. not that tangible, but it's still this kind of urge. For, like, yeah, and it can be extremely subtle, like the, the, the ninth of the ten fetters is udacha. Is that is 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 a restless? And it's not restlessness of, of um, kind of not being able to sit still on your cushion, but it's uh, the restlessness that that is more interesting than this. There's a, there's a the, there's a uh, there's a, a possibility over there that has more that's more attractive or more dangerous or more has more value than than this. So it's just that ooh. <laughs> There is the restlessness of the mind uh, not being awake to the the Dhamma in a f- complete way. So it's that has got more promise than than this. There's something there, some other, some there <laughs> that is more real, more solid, more valuable, more interesting than what's here. And that so that it, it's hard to describe. But that because some people say, well, how come Udacha is like the ninth of the ten fetters? It's just like really. How is that subtle? But it's that, the, it's that mental restlessness of, oh, what's that over there? Or that something, some state, some event in the, in the expected future is more interesting, more valuable, more important, more real than, than this. And so it's only when there's the, the complete freeing of the heart from ignorance, then there's that uh, an, an unshakable recognition, oh, you know, the, 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 there's nothing uh, the Dhamma is here and now there isn't a that that possesses anything that's more valuable or more real or more uh, anything solid or, or significant than, than this it's like the, the whole this that 
duality has lost its has lost its meaning, has lost its its uh, apparent value. That make, it's difficult to, to describe, but uh, it's um, it, it's that letting go of of any kind of, of uh, duality, even at a subtle subtle level. So to continue. The next section is called Original Blessing. The Buddha said that the nature of the heart is bright, vast, radiant. Defilements simply come along as visitors. So the and there's two short suttas side by side in the Anguttara in the numerical discourses in the Book of the Ones, Sutta fifty one and fifty two. Pabhasarami dan bikwe akandukehi kire sehi the the Pabhasarami dan the 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 nature of the of the jitta of the heart is pabhasra is is radiant is bright. Uh, the kilesas the defilements are akandukehi they they are only visitors. So in the Vinaya, when you have a, a Vinaya discipline uh, rules about uh, looking after visiting monks, Akanduka is the name, not not Dukkha as in Dukkha Dukkha, but <laughs> it sounds the same. But Akanduka is like a visiting monk or a visiting nun, like someone coming in from uh, outside. So in that particular teaching, the Buddha is saying that the defilements are just like visitors; they just uh, they are not anything fundamental. So that's a very uh, uh, central, uh, very common teaching. You find it in the in the words of uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, Venerable Ajahn Tate, uh, and uh, you know, many of the forest Ajahns quote that as a sort of basic principle that uh, the uh, the nature of the uh, the fundamental nature of mind is radiant, and defilements only come along as visitors. Rather than so uh, that. This is one of the central teachings of the forest Ajahns. Rather than the Christian doctrine of original sin, the Buddha's teaching points to original purity, original blessing. So it was St. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine that came up with the philosophy of original sin. And uh, there's a, 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 an interview of um, King, uh, the, the, the late um, King Rama the Ninth, King Bhumipon uh, Aduyade, the King of Thailand, being interviewed by the BBC. And when they're asking him about, about Buddhism, this is one of the points he makes, is that we, we think about, if in Buddhism we have a principle of original purity or original blessing rather than original sin. Um, so that the, the fundamental nature of mind, rather than being sinful, <laughs> Or uh, dark, or, or you know, in a in a sort of unwholesome and negative uh, connotations, the uh, in this respect, the, the nature of the of the the mind is seen as fundamentally originally pure, original purity. One doesn't have to believe this blindly or take it to be true merely on trust. Rather, we can test it and see for ourselves. If we have a direct look and explore, we find that when the heart is free of grasping. When the heart lets go of self-view, fear, desire, and the streams of thinking, when the heart is awake to the present reality, how does it feel? We can look and explore for ourselves. We don't have to believe the words of a spiritual authority or a teacher, like myself. <laughs> uh, we can know from our own direct experience. Uh, again, this contrasts a little bit, not just with the Bible, but also with Sigmund Freud and the... Uh, again, there's probably a few... It says, excuse me if there's any Freudians here, but the, he talked about the, the, the black tide of mud as symbolizing the, the, the id, or the basis of the fundamental nature of mind, or the basis of mind, the id, the black tide of mud. Um, uh, and so again, when I was a psychology student, I thought, that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we can have these very basic... Uh, uh, let's say, selfish or, or um, instinctual urges uh, that, that operate with a lot of strength in, in the mind, uh, what I would call the reptile brain uh, territory. But that's, not, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, that's missing out. That, the, that, that Rather than that being the fundamental, na fundamental nature of who and what we are, that's just the influence of our animal ancestry, but the fundamental nature of the jitta, uh, that... Uh, that in its essence, uh, and when we practice meditation and look at the nature of mind uh, from direct experience, direct knowing, then 
rather than the the sort of seething id <laughs> of a, of a instinctual destructive selfish uh, violent forces it's uh, instead what we find is that quality of purity radiance peacefulness when the when the grasping stops that's what we we find over and over again and if you're if you're hearing these words and thinking oh john you don't know my mind <laughs> the seething id yes yeah that's uh, that's definitely the the real me i said well uh, i would encourage more investigation and questioning to, to look more more directly at that because it might appear that whenever we, we look at our minds as kind of confusion or or impulsive attachment and so on but the the uh, the purpose of of the practice is to to uh, be looking directly at the nature of mind and also learning how there's habits of identification saying i am that this is mine this is me and to be using the, the the practice of concentration and insight to question that and to to help that quality of awareness that knows uh, those whenever those destructive or selfish or, or you know, greedy forces arise to recognize well that's this is greed or this is this is anger this is selfishness this is jealousy or this is violence and that that which knows those qualities isn't tied to them or limited to them or doesn't have to be um, identified with them it, it knows those qualities but it's not defined by those qualities the buddha talked about the quality of the mind free of grasping as a kind of transcendent consciousness the pali word vijja refers to this awakened awareness transcendent consciousness its opposite is avijja which translates as ignorance or not seeing things clearly or nescience a rather unusual word, nescience, N-E-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. -E -E. So the word science with N-E on the front. So science literally means knowing, from schiere in Latin. Thank you. <laughs> the Latin original, so to, to know. Um, our English word scry also comes from, uh, from that, I believe. And... Uh, so nascience, not knowing, not seeing things clearly. Vijja is the natural awakened awareness of the heart. When we take refuge in the Buddha, it is exactly this quality of vijja, knowing, awakened awareness, that is being embodied. When the clouds of attachment dissolve, this quality of wakefulness is the bright sun that appears. The awake-aware quality of the heart is the source of its essential radiance. When we establish the practice in this way, we are really being Buddha, quote-unquote, or being that awake mind. It is embodied in that quality of awake, open, alert knowing. Being Buddha, quote-unquote, is not some kind of giant ego trip, although to use those words it might sound a bit like that. Instead, it is being that awareness that knows ego trips arising and passing away. It's also the awareness that knows sad or happy feelings or irritated feelings arising and passing away. It is the same quality that knows all of the states, perceptions and actions of this body and mind, that knows the image of that face in the mirror. It is aware of the entire flow of attitudes and perceptions that are called me and the world. Also in the Tibetan, that vicha is rigpa and avicca is marigpa. So it's a, a, a and that in um, uh, various schools of Tibetan practice is a very very significant term um, and is a central part of meditation and the um, uh, process of spiritual <coughs> spiritual development and also that that um, uh, I've mentioned before the um, the Satipatthana the four foundations of mindfulness the third of the four foundations of mindfulness in particular. Uh, it's, a very, it, the, it's a very, very simple and clear description uh, when the Buddha is talking about knowing, uh, establishing mindfulness of mind states. So it, it, I think it's actually the, the shortest of all of the four uh, divisions of, of the um, Satipatthana. I'm not, I wouldn't swear to that, but uh, I think Vedana and Chitta, uh, Vedana Nupasana, Chitta Nupasana, both quite short. And it just says, uh, 
to establishing mindfulness of, of mind states and moods, knowing the expanded mind is expanded, knowing the contracted mind is contracted, knowing the agitated mind is agitated, the unagitated mind is unagitated, the concentrated mind is concentrated, the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated, the, the mind filled with anger is filled with anger, the mind free of anger is, filled, is free of anger, the mind filled with lust is filled with lust, the mind free of lust is free of lust, and so on. And, and for each of those, there's a, a, about... Um, eight or ten pairs of qualities, if I remember correctly, then it says, establishing mindfulness simply to the extent of knowing there is this. That is the, the full and complete establishment of mindfulness in this regard. So uh, there's no value judgment of whether it's wholesome or unwholesome uh, in that respect. It's just the agitated mind, the unagitated mind, the expanded mind, the contracted mind, the concentrated mind, the unconcentrated mind. So that quality of, of pure knowing, or that, that mindfulness, here it is, in this moment it's like this. And that's the establishment of mindfulness, is that that which knows the, ag- uh, the, the, the agitated mind is not agitated. <laughs> that which knows the, 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 the angry mind is not angry, or the mind which knows the mind free uh, of anger, is, uh, is this, it's the same mind. So there's a, a clear... A distinction, a separation, that the, the knowing, it knows those states, but it's not limited by those states or defined by those states. So Ajahn Chah would use this image of oil and water together in a bottle. And they say that uh, the awareness of states is like the oil and the, the, the states themselves like the water. Most, mostly they have the bottle shaken up so that the, the awareness of a state and the, and the state itself, that I'm angry, I'm excited, I'm concentrated, I'm sad, I'm, I'm sleepy, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, it's because, the, because of the, the bottle being shaken up by our habits of attachment and identification, then that I am, the, we, we, it feels like there's a, an automatic identification with the states wholesome or unwholesome or neutral but when he said all you need to do is put the bottle down very simple (laughs) put the bottle down and then the oil and the water separate out on their own they don't need to be be forced apart but if if there's a letting go of the the identification if we stop shaking the bottle as it were then the awareness separates out from the, the objects of awareness and that uh, that separating out uh, that and and the, the the complete separating out of that awareness that's a lot of what vipassana meditation is about. And also, it was a, a, a crucial insight when uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah met uh, uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, and the, he was only with him together for three days. But on the third day, he gave this dhamma talk where he said, uh, you know, the the quality of awareness, the puru, the uh, that awakened awareness. Is intrinsically transcendent of of the uh, the five khandas of the world. If it wasn't, liberation would be impossible. So, the, uh, but because it it is uh, in its purity, when that awareness is is completely purified and, and free of, of conceit and self view, ignorance, then uh, that awareness it's, it knows the world, but it's completely transcendent, unlimited by the world. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? I hope I'm representing Rigpa accurately there. I I actually did wonder um, because in the like more kind of sutric teachings, Mm -hmm. um, we we have this definition of uh, what we call shepa, which is translated as consciousness, Mm -hmm. and the definition of that would be sel shin Rigpa, so clear and knowing. So as, as this aspect of describing the, the workings of consciousness itself mm-hmm. is clear and knowing. So here, knowing is the Rig uh, aspect. Mm-hmm. But then when um, sort of um, the, the Vidya aspect might be kind of like the, um, the Rigpa when, when like the, the mind turns on itself kind mm-hmm. of thing. Is, is, is there a reference to that in... in, in in the in the Pali canon, uh, well, the the mind knowing its own nature, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, that's um, that's not uncommon. That uh, the mind knowing the mind, or the, the mind knowing its own nature, different. Uh, I'd I'd be hard pressed to quote exactly exact places, 
But uh, Lumpur Dun, who's one of the great forest ajans, talked about that. That is the, as a, as sort of the essence of the Eightfold Path, is the mind knowing the mind. Okay, so to continue a little bit. With regard to dependent origination, the third exit point from the cycle of addiction, the wheel of birth and death, is to not let the cycle start in the first place. When the heart is established in this quality of vicha, awakened awareness, then avicha doesn't arise. When we chant the words describing paticca samupada, dependent origination, the whole of the second half refers to the non-arising or the cessation of the cycle. When avicca ceases, when there is no ignorance, sankara does not arise. Avijaya taveva asesa viraga niroda sankara niroto sankara nirodha vinyana niroto vinyana nirodha and so on. The Paticca Samupada is a description of the process of experience when it is influenced by avicca. The first four links of the dependent origination process are avicca, sankara, vinyana, namarupa. These are what I describe as the establishing of the subject-object relationship. When the mind doesn't see clearly, when there is avicca, that gives rise to sankara. Sankara is the basic forming or dividing process of the mind. When the mind is not seeing clearly, it creates the realm of things and the agent, who is knowing those things. The mind drifts into the delusion of experiencer and experienced, subject and object, as separate and distinct realities. In the traditional painting of the six realms and dependent origination, hopefully up on the walls here, Sankara is depicted as a potter, forming and shaping a clay pot on a wheel. The next two steps, Vinyana and Namarupa, as mentioned earlier, are described very clearly in a wonderful little book called The Magic of the Mind by Bhikkhu Jnanananda. He talks about Vinyana and Namarupa working together like a vortex, a whirlpool, getting stronger and stronger. They work together to strengthen this division of consciousness, Vinyana, into the knower, and the mental physical factors, Namarupa, into the known. That initial process of subject-object is like a, a little disturbance in the stream that then escalates into a whirlpool gets stronger and stronger until there is the sense of me with this body and senses and the world out there. It happens extremely fast. The next link is Salayatna, the six sense spheres. This is the feeling I see, I hear, etc. At this point, the world of sense perception seems absolutely real. In the Pali Canon, there are many different ways that dependent origination is described. The standard 12 links is just one representation. In the longest discourse about dependent origination, Mahanidana Sutta, the great discourse on causation, the Buddha starts with the experience of dukkha and then follows it backwards through the various links. He describes each link as conditioning, pachaya, the next, but in that teaching he only describes the process as going back as far as namarupa and vinyana, then how those two factors are mutually conditioning of each other. As talked about in previous readings before. One more thing to remember, again as mentioned earlier, pachaya doesn't always mean A directly causes B. It's more that one link affects another in some way, shape or form. Sometimes the links arise together, sometimes one is a necessary condition for the other. There are many different ways that the relationship between these links can be understood. It's important to point out that dependent origination doesn't mean that ignorance is the creator of sankhara. There is an effect from one link to the next, and that effect can vary. So all that I said before in previous chapters, but I, I repeated it just for the sake of you can forget what was in the previous chapter very easily. So, and uh, Dhamma talks often have a lot of repetition in them, so I just uh, repeated all of that there. So I'll just read this last section. This is called Cessation and Non-Arising, the apostrophe. The word niroda is often translated as cessation, implying a thing that has begun, then comes to an end. But it also means the non-arising of something, or the restraining, limiting of something. So the root of the word is rud, R-U-D, rud, which means to, to check or to hold, and to, to restrain as well as to end. From nirujati. So, the word niroda is thus a convention of language, a word, 
that it indicates an absence. So, just as an apostrophe is a mark that indicates some letters have been left out of an English phrase, as in would have for would have, or isn't for is not, or it's for it is. The word dukkha niroda represents an absence of dukkha, an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a something that indicates a nothing. It makes the reader conscious of a significant absence. Hence the title of the book. So the, the arising part of the cycle is the, the catastrophe and the cessation, avijaya taveva asesa viraga niroda, sankara nirodo, sankara niroda, that's the apostrophe. So it's a something that indicates a nothing, a, 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 indicating a significant absence. When there is vijja, there is awareness. Avijja doesn't arise. The whole cycle of birth and death, that division into subject and object, me and the world, is not given any fuel. This third exit point from the cycle is thus positioned before avijja appears, or just after it's been dispelled. So that the exit point is actually sort of a uh, link, so pre-link number one. <laughs> so it's a, at, the, uh, at the very top of the whole thing, so before ignorance uh, has, has kicked in. We might find this puzzling or strange, or we might find our mind wanting to work out the logic of how it all fits together, but instead of trying to figure it all out, just watch how it works. When the heart is established in that quality of the selfless, bright simplicity of knowing, notice how there is an absence of me and the world. There's seeing, hearing, feeling, remembering, but that flow of perception and feeling is not accompanied by the sense of I or me or mine. And there is the absence of the feeling of alienation that comes with that. There's a naturalness, a simplicity and a beauty to each moment. Even if what is being perceived is not pleasant or is very ordinary, the heart is still able to fully enjoy each moment because of the full attunement of the heart to its own nature. There's no need to believe or disbelieve these words. Experiment. We can explore for ourselves. In our clearest moments, how is the experience of this being in the world? How is it? The inner world and the outer world. How does it feel? This third exit point from the cycle is thus related to the third noble truth, Dukkha Niroda, the cessation of suffering. Just as with the first two noble truths, the Buddha gave an instruction on how to work with this third noble truth, he named the task as, it is to be realized, appreciated, fully taken to heart. This means that the ending of dukkha is to be wholly appreciated, embodied, known as real. Otherwise, how could the heart fully imbibe the delightful truth that there is no dukkha? You might think that such an appreciation would go without saying, but the conditioning of the perceptual process tends to work against this. So, for example, we're sitting and we hear a continuous sound sound of traffic or the, the humming of the fridge. When the sound stops, there are a few seconds of ah, as we realize that the perhaps unpleasant sound has stopped. In the same way, we only notice niroda, cessation of suffering, in contrast to the presence of samdukkha. After a few seconds, the absence of the irritating sound has become ordinary, and so the mind ignores that absence. Ignorance has literally been established once again. And just I thought to share with you a significant sutta about the um, that relating to the sense world without self-view and conceit. So this is called the Bahia Sutta, um, and it's from the, the first chapter of the Udana, Sutta number ten in the first chapter of the Udana. And Bahia was a wanderer who, of a different sect, who was under the impression he was an arahant. And then a relative of his who had passed away and was become a deva went to Bahia and said, uh, not only are you not an arahant, but you're not even on the path to becoming an arahant. So Bahia, to his credit, said, um, okay, well, are there any arahants in the world? And, and, uh, and the deva said, well, actually, there are. There's this, uh, this monk, the Samana Gotama, who lives near Savati, and uh, he indeed is an arahant. So to his credit, Bahia just started walking you know, then and there and, 
lived on the coast of, of northern, northern India and apparently walked all the way from the, the coast to Savati in uh, Uttar Pradesh and then met the Buddha on his arms round in the middle of the street. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so then uh, the Buddha said, we are on our arms round by here, this is not the right time. Life is uncertain, Venerable Sir. We never know when we're going to die. Please teach me the Dhamma. This dialogue repeats itself three times. Three times over, the Buddha says the same thing, and Bahia responds in the same way. Finally, the Buddha says, when a Tathagata is pressed three times, he has to answer. So if you, if you meet a Buddha and you want a question answered, just ask, ask three times, and then he has to reply. So it's not always a good thing. So sometimes people regret it, but then... But uh, he, when pressed three times, he has to answer. Listen carefully, Bahia, and attend to what I say. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Like so, see, uh, smelt, tasted, touched, and thought. Thus, you should see that indeed there is no thing here on the side of the subject. This, Bahia, is how you should train yourself. Since by here there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here on the, sub, on the side of the subject, you will therefore see that there, indeed there is no thing there on the side of the object. As you see there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. So Bahia became an arahant right there in the street, um, uh, hearing the sound of these these words, and he got the he got the title of being the one who understood the teaching most swiftly. The Buddha gave out awards occasionally, but the Agha, the supreme in various qualities, and so that uh, Venerable Bahia, uh, well, he, he didn't even have time to become a monk. He got knocked down by a runaway cow. And died in the street a few minutes later, but uh, he had the, got the Aga Award for uh, the one who understood the teaching most completely and most quickly. So there's a whole set of stories around Bahia and the others, but I thought I would share that with you. Any last questions, thoughts? So I'm going to disappear for three weeks, but I thought I'd have a few goodies to give out. These are not sweets. These are little badges that say, it's like this. So uh, I have a certain number of these. There isn't quite enough for everybody, but anyone who would like an It's Like This beautiful enamel badge. Lumpur uh, Sumedho gave me these with his own fair hand. They were, somebody made lots and lots of them for him to give out. So if anyone would like, please don't be shy. I'm not going to throw them. <laughs> there are white ones, blue ones, green ones, black ones. There we go. Find a white one, first. a black one, and a white one. Yeah, thank between. you. Yeah, thank you. Atsuko is shy. There's <laughs> a, a magenta one. Thank you. I don't have any, and I gave mine to others. Ah, <laughs> All you need to know, like uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa was very against amulets. He said the only amulet that is valuable is the one that has written on it, Binyanmi Eng. This is the way it is. Still got a few more. There's Alan, yes, don't be shy. Maybe I can take one for Lena. Just go from Moscow. For? For Lena, from Moscow, next time I'll go and uh-huh. pass it to her. Thank you. Two more. 
few, there we go, the last two, excellent. Come, come, come. Yes. Yeah, it's just the right amount. Just matanyuta, it's just the right amount. There you go, it's like this. Last one. Lumpur's got hundreds more. That's <laughs> <laughs> what he gave me the other day. So. Okay, so I'll call it quick for today. Handamayang Dhamma Uvada Kataya Sadhu Karang Dadamase Sadhu